This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with author Bree Lee. Bree joined me in the studio to talk about her memoir, Eggshell Skull, which looks at the time she spent as a judge's associate in the Queensland District Courts, as well as her time as a complainant in the Queensland legal system. I'm really pleased to have with me in the studio author Bree Lee, who has written a book called Eggshell Skull, a memoir about standing up, speaking out and fighting back. And Bree joins me in the studio. Hi, Bree. Hi, thank you for having me. It's really wonderful to have you. And, uh, and I'm so excited to be talking about this book because it was so compelling that I was just telling you I couldn't stop reading and, um, and I got through it so quickly. So yeah, it just is a testament to how beautiful your writing is and just how moving and gripping this story is. So congratulations on such a great book. Thank you so much. Can I ask, is it your first book that you've published? Yes. So yeah, such a big achievement. Yeah, it feels pretty surreal. Uh, It took two years, which is, um, uh, yeah, I I don't know what, I don't think anything is normal in book world. Um, But yeah, it's, it's really exciting and a bit terrifying now to be touring it because you spend most of your time as a writer by yourself in your room, um, you know, alone in solitude working on this thing. And then it sort of feels like all of a sudden you like chop your arm off and it's out there in the world growing on its own. Um, And it's, yeah, it's really exciting, but nerve wracking. Yeah, absolutely. So let's head into the content of this book. Bree, this is really a memoir. It's about your life, but it's not just about your life. It's about the many other people you encounter and particularly during your career, your early career as an associate to a district court judge in Queensland. Could you share with us a bit about that job? And for those who are unfamiliar with the law, what drove you or led you to engage with the law at that level in that particular setting? Mm. So a judge's associate is basically a fancy term for a judge's assistant. Um, You are a personal assistant um, and kind of a secretary and you manage their calendar and their schedule and their administrative stuff, but you are also a legal assistant, which means um, each judge is different and each judge has their own associate. Um, But for my judge, I would sometimes proofread his judgments. I would help him with legal research. And also a critical component of the job is that you are in the courtroom keeping minutes of proceedings. Um, If it's criminal law, the associate is responsible from pulling jurors' names out of the barrel to impanel them for jury duty. Uh, you accept and mark exhibits that attended of evidence, um, all kinds of stuff. It's one of those jobs where if everything runs smoothly and you are invisible, then you're good at your job. And if anything goes wrong, it's your fault. <laughs> um, and it's a really uh, sought-after position. Um, It's entry-level position. Most people who are judges associates um, are straight out of law school um, at university. Typically the contracts are for one or two years and after you're an associate the idea is that um, you can springboard into almost any aspect of the legal industry that you want to because an associateship is such a well-regarded coveted position and you know you come with a judge as a referee. And I applied for it um, uh, I guess for the same reason that I even started studying law, which is um, I'd been exposed to those ideas and those themes for a very long time because my father was a police officer and a police prosecutor. And I was just drawn to the 
the world of the law because to me it just had such significance because you are at um, the point at which humans interact with each other in a way that creates conflict and you are trying to resolve that conflict. Absolutely. And so in terms of the role of an associate, did you ever see people in that role relish the role and want to stay there longer than one or two years? Or was some of the content just so difficult that it was one of those short-term roles for a reason? Both. Um, Even for a little while, I thought that I wanted to do it for longer um, because it's such a privilege. Um, I have a great amount of respect and, um, you know, like professional adoration for the judge that I was an associate to and I would, I could work for him for the rest of my life. Um, He's so... It's a real privilege to be spending every single day and doing a lot of travelling if you go on circuit with this incredibly intelligent person and doing that kind of really important work. But then, yeah, like you said, um, particularly for those of us who were associates to judges who did a lot of criminal law, some judges do mostly civil law, which is, of course, a lot about money and contracts. But the judge I worked for did almost exclusively criminal law, which meant a new trial and a handful of new sentences every week. And it was gruelling. It really did come across that way. It was kind of a treadmill you couldn't really get off and there weren't that many moments of respite because from what it appears in in your book is that your judge particularly was dealing with child sex abuse cases, sexual assault cases, rape cases and these are disproportionately cases where women are the complainants and where men are the uh, defendants and so obviously that brings up a lot of gender dynamics, power dynamics in a courtroom and I wonder from your perspective when you were working in this role and you said you were taking notes and making observations, what were some of the things that stood out to you that perhaps got you emboldened or impassioned in some way about this issue more broadly, not just from your obviously your own personal story, which we'll get to in a minute, but in particular, what were those elements in in those cases and and the patterns that you saw that you noticed and that you wanted to pick up and focus on? Mm. So yeah, like you mentioned, um, I'd only been working in the job for about a week or two before I just started taking notes. Like almost compulsively. Um, And a lot about court is extremely recorded. You know, it's all the audio is recorded. It is transcribed. There are official records, but I felt like nobody was bearing witness the way I thought um, those proceedings justified. And I thought that a part of the reason why I felt that way and what I still think is that it was because I was the youngest person in the room and I had not yet um, basically had the empathy not beaten out of me. I'm not saying that um, people who do that work for a long time aren't empathetic, but yeah, I was just significantly more shocked and outraged. Um, And, you know, you can't really maintain shock and outrage for too long in that industry before you, um, you know, if you can't survive there for too long, unless you have an ability to compartmentalize. And I certainly didn't. And so I was taking these notes and in taking notes, um, like you said, patterns really quickly started emerging. So for example, um, It's a problem where for a regular criminal offence, the rate at which defendants plead guilty is up at around 70% and that drops down to about 30% for sex and child sex offences. So the result is that the system is just clogged um, with defendants who don't want to plead guilty um, because either they are refusing to take responsibility for their actions or because they think they can get away with it and because so often they do. Um, And so unfortunately... um, 
accurately and um, my judge described sex and child sex offences as the bread and butter of the district court because just so much of that work is that content. Um, And there were patterns even within that. So it became monotonous to the point of offensive um, that it was so frequently mum's new boyfriend or the stepfather figure um, in a family's life, often, especially when we went out on circuit to regional and remote areas, um, often the mother of the children and, and sort of just the family went in a situation of financial dependence on the male um, in question. Um, sometimes there were drugs involved, um, not always, obviously, but it was just also really clear to me. And then I went and researched and found that the facts backed it up, that it was always, um, or almost always, um, a male who was a member of the, f- the family unit or, or the close friendship unit of the family who was offending against either the young women or children in the family and that um, it happened overwhelmingly in a domestic setting without the use of a weapon, which means that you don't have any CCTV footage, you don't have any um, physical injuries to accompany the complaint of sexual misconduct and it makes it really hard for jurors to latch on to what they expect air quotes, evidence um, to look like. Mm. Because in this book, there are many cases where you highlight that really it's the complainant's word is the primary source of evidence. It's their memory, their word, their recollection of the events versus the defendants who may or may not testify and usually they don't. So that's also really a difficult thing to comprehend is that the jury's kind of presented with this one side of the story from the complainant and then they've got this gap of primary evidence or testimony from the defendant. How did that play out in those cases where the jury was really presented with this one source of evidence? Mm, it's tricky um, because there's a... You can take a matter, if you're a defendant, you can take a matter to trial and your two options are that you either simply put the prosecution to proof, which is where you plead not guilty and basically say, um, you know, I have a right to a presumption of innocence. I'm not going to say anything, but you need to prove it. Um, And then the other option is when you either give or call evidence, which is um, uh, quite uncommon, as you said. Um, So the defendants in these cases, um, often they're they will receive instruction from their defence solicitors and or barristers um, not to give evidence um, because it opens them up to cross-examination, which is a risk. And that's a risk that the complainant must go through but the defendant does not need to go through because, yeah, as I mentioned, they have a right to a presumption of innocence without having to put forward a counter case. And it makes it... Juries have a hard task and uh, juries get it wrong all the time. They often get it right, um, but it's not... An, great system. It's not a system I love. Um, And sometimes you would have a trial where it really did feel like there was a gaping hole of information that the defendant surely would have been able to shed some illumination on. Um, And other times you'll arrive to court and you know for... like you know pretty well why they're not giving evidence and it's kind of watertight and you don't feel like there are any gaps because for example the complainant will have other witnesses to testify you know seeing the defendant come out of her room on that night or that yeah they went to get dinner but then they were gone for three hours when they came back stuff like that Mm. yeah it's case by case Yes, and you do write that it's so easy for them to say that her word alone, in air quotes, wasn't enough to overcome their reasonable doubts. The alternative is a little terrifying, that if one in five women are assaulted, one in five men might be assaulters. 
It is one of those very confronting questions which you return to in your book over and over. And this obviously brings forward a lot of your personal experience that you look around yourself, you're you know, jogging somewhere, you're walking home from work and you see these sites where you know crimes have been committed and you're questioning you know, how many of these people have committed an assault, how many of these people have survived assaults and have or haven't come forward. So I want to get to your story and how this all interrelates because you yourself when you were a child experienced a sexual assault or what is better termed in legal jargon and could you mm. correct me yeah no it's okay it's just yeah it's um yeah when I was a child um I had two counts of indecent treatment committed mm. against me but yeah most yeah. people would I guess refer to it as um yeah sexual interference with a child. Yeah. And that's something which it was so hard to see you go through all of this because your job is bringing you into contact with the very thing that you have, you know, experienced as a very young person. And and there are a lot of ways that you try and cope to get through this job because you're constantly being reminded of this experience. Can you talk about how you felt day to day where, and it seems like your judge in particular had a disproportionate number of cases that were involving children, how, how that really felt for you to, to, to try and get through the day when other people weren't aware that you yourself had really gone through something really significant? Mm. So, yeah, I didn't tell anyone um, for a very long time. And at the beginning of the year, um, it was, yeah, my first day of work. It started with a bang, had to um, proofread a judgment about some really horrific child sexual assault. And um, at the beginning, I would read that content or even in the early trials and sentences would hear that um, witness evidence in front of me and I would feel a a physical sense of discomfort. Um, I would feel a queasiness in my stomach. I would feel a kind of irritation that made me want to twitch and fumble um, at the very beginning. And a little part of me knew that there was something going on, but for a very long time, for a few weeks at least, for maybe a month or so, I just sort of thought, well, this is horrific content. Of course I'm uncomfortable listening to it. You know, you'd have to be a robot to hear this stuff and not have some kind of response. Um, But then it got worse and, um, you know, drank more, smoked more. Um, It wasn't until I was writing the book that I realised how much um, disordered eating habits I had gotten into because I just had this really quickly building, growing sense of self-loathing and resentment and discomfort within my body. And it was just manifesting in all kinds of really crap ways um, because I hadn't told anyone. Um, On one instance, um, I thought I might try to talk to someone and in the associates training at the beginning of the year, we'd all been told that we had three free um, completely confidential counselling sessions. And so I finally sort of plucked up the courage to put that phone call in and then in a almost Monty Python-esque scene (laughs) found out that um, none of the counsellors were available in out-of-office hours in locations I could get to, but they could give me a slip that I could take to get my judge to sign to give me permission to have time off work. And it was a joke. And so definitely felt like um, there was no sort of support infrastructure, even though I had a wonderful partner and and, um, loving parents and pretty good friends. Mm. It's so surprising to think that there's this encouragement to 
have counselling or to not be afraid to talk about mental health and then make it difficult for anyone who wants to become a lawyer to to seek help for it. And it, that is a wider issue in the legal profession, I know. Oh, it's so awful. The yeah. whole profession is just holding each other up with a fine veneer of lacquer. It's, it's so much drug and alcohol abuse in that profession and so many undiagnosed mental health issues. And they're just a buttload of type A personalities <laughs> full of anxiety um, who can't, yeah, really can't voice or articulate um, any sense of struggle because they won't, you know, um, get promoted. Yeah. And what is very heartwarming in this book is that you have so many people around you who are just beautiful people. Mm. Like you said, your judges uh, Amazing. It, yeah, I just <laughs> I fell in love with him. He's just yeah. so beautiful. He's yeah. so kind and wise and thoughtful and considered. It's just one of those people I can see why you looked up to him mm. and why you would want to be around someone like that and just soak it all up. Mm. But also your parents and your boyfriend mm. are constantly such a source of comfort and nurturing. And it's something that strikes me is that if you being in such a wonderful environment environment in terms of the people that love you are struggling with this what about the people who are in a bad environment who don't have a family that cares about them it must be really difficult not just for you but for all those people who don't have a, a support system around them could you talk about that and, and the kind of family situations you were seeing and whether you were empathizing with these people and how you felt about it mm. so something that occurred to me throughout the entire process um which was, you know, when I was working my courage up to going to the police to making a complaint and then during the huge investigation um, and onwards was that it was so hard for me and I almost didn't make it through and yet I had everything that a complainant could have. Um, I knew when I finally came forward, I had, you know, I was pretty sure that um, my partner and my family and my friends would believe me and they did. Um, I was... Um, in a economically, you know, financially secure position, um, I, I wasn't have to, I didn't have to worry about food on the table mm. or rent. You're well um, educated. Absolutely, I knew how the legal system worked. I was, I'm literally qualified to practice <laughs> law. I had everything, and it was still so hard and so scary, and took so long. Um, and there were so many times I nearly, um, you know, threw in the towel, um, and I just don't know how we expect anybody to to go through that without all the resources that I had. Mm. Um, and that's a really important part of the book um, is for me acknowledging that. Um, and yeah, just so often cases in trials in particular, because in a trial compared to a sentence, you know, you get to hear so much of the stories. So often, um, particularly the mothers of these children and sort of young women, um, you know, you're talking about like sort of 13-year-old girls who um, aren't really capable of legal consent who are so frequently victimised. And the mothers are financially dependent on these men. Um, there were some instances where the men would bring drugs into the house and get the mothers addicted to the drugs um, in order to basically be able to offend against their children and have access to their children. Um, a lot of uh, manipulation, emotional and also physical and domestic and family violence um, just basically controlling environments where um, by the time it came time for a defendant to offend against a woman or child, they were already so afraid that, you know, they didn't need to use a weapon. Mm. And one of the 
facts that you bring up that I found really shocking. Um, But then again, when I thought about it once more, I thought, actually, it's not that shocking. You write that a 2011 report by the Australian Institute of Criminology clarified some commonly held mistaken beliefs about sex offenders and that it's a common misconception that all child sex offenders are pedophiles. The subheading went on, as you say, when in the majority of cases, sex offences against children are opportunistic and carried out by people who are also attracted to adults and they commonly take place in the home without the use of a weapon and the perpetrator is usually an older male known to the victim. So these are people who look normal. They Mm. look like a regular person. As you have written in this book, there are many of these offenders who do get found to be guilty and obviously some who were found not guilty who perhaps were mm. that appeared very av- an average Australian male they do have relationships with adults absolutely and that misconception is um, something that I've been really passionate to talk about on the book tour and I'm really glad you brought it up because it was just always a problem when jurors were presented with the possibility of having to find a man guilty of as you know a child sex offense um, what they think of when they think pedophile is, for example, um, you know, one of Australia's most famous pedophiles, Dennis Ferguson. They think of someone who is compulsively and um, exclusively attracted to prepubescent children. Um, But actually, the vast majority of sex offenders, that's not them. They're not actually, you know, pedophiles the way um, people expect them. They are offending against um, mostly young women, Um, sometimes boys as well, of course, Um, but mostly just young women who are underneath the legal age of consent where they just want to have intercourse for the sexual gratification and they think that if they offend against that particular person at that time that they can get away with it and they don't Mm. care how old she is or, you know, obviously how terrifying and horrific that would be. Um, And it's just the few times that the defendants would get in the witness box Um, basically one of the many plot lines that a defence barrister would take them through is that they were a regular bloke, just like you or me. Mm. Um, And, yeah, it's, it's, it's so frustrating that we have all of these myths around what actual, even what actual um, complainants, what actual victims do um, and what actual pedophiles are, and these are all fabrications. Yes, and one of the other things that you talk about is that sex crime trials have higher rates of conviction where weapons are involved because there's an obvious assault or violence mm. that you can you can find the weapon or you can see a real injury on someone mm. and also where people of colour are the defendants and you talk about the Indigenous incarceration rates being so high in comparison to the number of Indigenous Australians that are in our population. Particularly going out into Queensland, into regional areas, you must have been confronted with a lot of those situations where people, Indigenous Australians, um, white Anglo-Saxon Australians, other uh, multicultural Australians... In terms of those experiences, when you were encountering these race and class disparities, how much do you think they're disadvantaged by the legal system, that the actual processes and rules and, and also just the biases of a jury system where you're reliant upon these average Australians selected from the community to pass judgment mm. on evidence? 
Yeah, hugely disadvantaged. Um, and I'm glad you picked up on class as well, because if you're talking about access to the legal system or access to justice or even a complainant's ability to keep trucking through with a complaint, money um, or class has so much to do with it. Um, and the other thing is that that bias against um, race, against class, um, against gender starts way before they even get in front of a jury. So one thing that's really frustrating is that the highest point of case attrition, and that means that um, when you know um, complaints are dropped, um, is at the police investigation stage. And the police get to choose um, you, you know, within certain parameters which cases they refer to the Department of Public Prosecutions and which ones they drop. Mm. And then once it gets, if it gets past the police, it gets to the DPP and then they, that's the second highest point of case attrition where they're just dropped. And the DPP in particular make decisions about what matters go to trial or not to trial based on how successful they think they will be in front of a jury and the presumptions that they make about the presumptions that the jurors will make. And so a DPP officer um, knows that it's statistically more likely that a man of colour accused with a sex or child sex offence mm. is likely to be found guilty. And so not only is that potentially more likely to happen at the court stage, but it's also just more likely that that man will even get in front of a jury than a white man to be in front of a jury. Um, it's a huge problem. Um, after one event I had, I speak really um, <laughs> with a lot of passion and frustration mm. about um, how defence barristers will veto certain people based on um, spare-of-the-moment profiling when I would call their names out of the barrel. So um, the associate picks random names out of a selection in a barrel and prosecution and defence each get eight challenges. Um, And I saw it many, many times that defence would challenge uh, women in sex and child sex offences and they would challenge young people because typically young people have a much more progressive attitude towards, for example, matters of consent. Um, Also, young people are much quicker to judge, typically. Um, And I had a woman come up to me after an event and say... It's not fair that you criticise defence barristers for using the tools they have available to them. Um, You know, just the other week I was defending an Indigenous Australian man who was accused of rape and, of course, I did everything I could to make sure that there weren't as many as possible white women on the jury because white women are terrified of black men, which is true, historically speaking. Um, And what the stats show us is that the more white women on that jury, the more potentially likely that black man is to be convicted. Mm. And so, um, you know, that's one really specific example of how it's not even just about what ends up happening in the jury room in terms of representation of jurors and deliberation. It starts way back at the police stage Mm. and then at the DPP stage. Yeah. And so I just want to pick up on your experience because it was really interesting to highlight just how tenuous these kind of things were, as, as you were saying, the Department of Public Prosecutions or the DPP need to pick up your case from the police who have taken your statement or addendum statements and that kind of thing, and they decide whether they'll proceed. And there is a lot of to and froing at the beginning of your case. You had to put in so much courage and effort just to make the statement, jump through all these hoops and emotional times, really trying times. And then you still have to, I guess, prove that you have a potentially successful case because we only have so many resources that we can put into these cases 
In terms of your uh, situation and particularly looking at how it worked in a legal process or system perspective, how frustrating was it for you to have that stop, start, stop, start, come to court, no one turns up except you or your side? You know, mm. how, how difficult is that? Because it seems like there's a lot of mind games going on as well as just disorganisation. and Yeah, H- hugely frustrating and really, really disheartening that this thing that is so awful for you to carry on your shoulders is so insignificant to the system that people can just forget to show up. <laughs> so insulting. Um, and just, to be honest, not good enough. Yeah. Um, so, and there's not really yeah. a, any consequences, as no, you said. No. So um, it was pretty unique. Um, I made sure that I attended all bar one mention of my matter as it went through about a year at the magistrate's court level um, and I felt confident enough to do that because I knew that system Mm. but it was still really terrifying for example when you rock up on ground floor of the mags court um, when I you know look at the screens to see what courtroom my matter is going to be heard in amongst you know 50 other matters that day because magistrate's court is like so busy I stepped into the elevator and didn't know if the defendant was going to be there the man who had sexually abused me as a child Mm. didn't he could have stepped into the elevator right after me and I'd be stuck in an elevator with him because if I want to hear my matter in public I just have to get thrown in with the whole lot of it whoever might be in the building at that time yeah there's no support infrastructure for complainants to be able to bear witness to their own matter being played out in the system and the other frustrating thing um definitely as you mentioned a lot of mind games so with um the defendant in my case Uh, before he was even charged, um, as soon as the police knocked on his door and let him know that he was the subject of an investigation, he hadn't been charged yet, um, he went and hired a solicitor and a barrister. And he basically proceeded to um, use as much money and sort of tactics as he could to protract proceedings. Um, With hindsight, um, my personal opinion is that... um, part of one of the tactics that they used was that the defense team would feed information through that oh yep he's going to plead he's going to plead it's fine he'll the phrase was fall on his sword and then a month later it would be like oh absolutely not i can't you know no the um you know this evidence or this piece of testimony is absolutely useless i can't you know this is a frivolous and vexatious claim no way take it to trial and what just happened over two years is that my heart was just like wrenched in and out of my guts so many times um and they knew the truth which is that the longer you can drag it out the more likely the complainant is to drop off that you can shake complainants off because that process is so horrific Mm. i just want to cover off on two more things before i have to let you go in terms of one of the cases that really stuck out for you and that was that pivotal moment that you saw someone experience this great lightness this lifting from their shoulders of a burden that they'd been carrying for years and years it was one of those cases where uh, rare cases where a man was in fact the claimant and a man was the defendant could you talk a bit about what that experience was for you witnessing the outcome that he received and also why that was so important to be the moment that spurred you to take action at that time. Mm. So I had been, um, that was I think about halfway through the year or a little bit past halfway through the year as an associate and I had been um, 
on some really, really cerebral level thinking, maybe I would do something about it, maybe. Um, and then we were in Warwick and we had a trial listed and it was it had a one to two day estimate, which is very short for a trial. Um, normally they're around three days. And it was it ended up being the shortest trial that we ran because there was basically no evidence apart from the complainant's testimony. And it was a historical child sex offence case. Um, there were no, I think maybe there was one other witness, um, but really no corroborating testimony from any other family members to say that the defendant was even like living in the house at the time. Like this was a real shaky case. Mm-hmm. And um, the complainant was a man and he... Um, he was successful. He got um, guilt. The the jury found the defendant guilty on all counts. Um, it's a separate question that I would take a long time chatting about if I think that would have happened if the complainant was a woman. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that I really grapple with in the book as well. Um, but basically, the thing that really got me was that at the end of the trial, um, the complainant has the opportunity to write a victim impact statement. And mostly that victim impact statement will be typed up and submitted and it will be handed up to the associate and the judge who read it and consider it. There are very specific rules about what a victim impact statement can and cannot be used for in terms of sentencing. But at its heart, it's just an opportunity for a complainant to feel like they've been heard the way they want to and for them to be able to express to the court um, the effect that the defendant's conduct had on them. And in that case in Warwick, um, it was the first and the only time that I saw a defendant stand up in the box and read their victim impact statement out to the court. I just get emotional even thinking about it. Um, he talked about uh, he talked a lot about obviously the hurt that that had caused him and, and the horrific effect it had had on his life. But what actually really got to me was he talked about the Im- incredible relief he felt and the closure he felt at finally being able to move on from this and then when he stepped down from the dock he fell into his wife's arms and she caught him and I just thought um I think I have people who would catch me and so I just I was sitting in the courtroom (laughs) trying not to cry because Mm. you have to be an absolute stone wall as an associate um but I just I decided right then and right there that when I got back from Warwick I had to do something about it and then I would tell people and make a police complaint and then I did Mm. it the next week. And it's such a moving picture that you paint in that moment and it's obviously still something that is moving today and a really important moment for you. Mm. One of the things I would love to know to close out this discussion is in writing this book and revisiting it all, that all these experiences, the notes you'd been taking, the reflections you'd have, what are some of the things that you really hope that other people who perhaps have had this experience as a child or as a teenager even in their adult life and they're carrying this burden with them and they're really struggling with it are there any things that you were hoping that people might take from this book that would offer them some sense of comfort or a similar experience as to you know I guess the experience you had with that man who who was um, supported and and had that experience of lightness at the end Mm. yeah I would say um you never know how strong you are until your metal is tested, obviously. Um, but it, if 
you close your eyes and picture whatever for you is the worst case scenario. For some people that might be that their partner or parents don't believe them. For some people that might be um, having to go to trial and testify regardless of the outcome. For some people that might be a defendant being found not guilty. Mm. If you close your eyes and picture that worst case scenario and you think that you could survive that, then don't wait another day because I feel on the other being on the other side of my matter now regardless of the outcome I feel absolutely invincible mm. it's the best thing I ever did and um all of my relationships with the people in my life who came up to meet me and had my back have been solidified in a way that you know barely anything else could have achieved um and I have that relief and that closure that that man in Warwick spoke about um so yeah if you think you could survive it at the worst, then then go for it. Mm. And just finally, in terms of the title of the book, it is a really impactful title and it has a very interesting legal background, but why did you pick Eggshell Skull to encapsulate this story? Because, so the, the term is a legal maxim that stands for the idea that you must take your victim as you find them. So if person A strikes person B and person B has a skull as thin as an eggshell and so they die, person A is not allowed to say that person B wasn't as strong as a, air quotes, regular person. Mm. You know, we're responsible for the entire ramifications of our actions and we don't mm. get to pick and choose how the victim is offended by our actions towards them. And I became interested in that topic during that year because I was interested in, like, all of the questions we've talked about, how defense defendants pick their victims, why defendants are the way they are, why they think they can get away with it, why they do and don't plead guilty. Mm. But also I became really interested in how I should have had every sort of weapon in my arsenal and that unfortunately for the guy who offended against me, he couldn't take his victim, he couldn't, you know, pick and choose his victim, he had to take me as he found me, which was a, like, a person with literally, I'm a lawyer and I had entire family support and I was not going to back down and I yeah. just liked the idea yeah. that you could take a legal maxim that is normally used to represent victim's weakness and maybe turn it into a signal of a victim's strength. Thank you so much Brie, it was really wonderful talking to you and uh, congratulations on this book and also I'm so glad to hear that you're feeling invincible because you look invincible. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me, I really appreciate it. And that was my interview with author Brie Lee and we were talking about her memoir which has just been released. It's called Eggshell Skull and it's out through Allen and Unwin and Brie was the inaugural winner of the Kate Cat sorry, Cat Musket Fellowship which is offered through Express Media and it's for young writers who um, are doing some great work and identify as female or non-binary. So do look up that fellowship as well and uh, and thank you again to Brie Lee for being just so uh, honest and um, open and really generous with her experiences. And if any of that discussion... Um, brought up issues for you or queries or concerns um, or if you're struggling yourself with any of the topics that we discussed you can call lifeline on 13 11 14 
or you could also call 1800RESPECT, which is 1800-555-677, which is a 24-hour support and counselling line, which is provided to people impacted by sexual assault, domestic or family violence and abuse. So um, there is that support there and please um, do seek it out. You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. If this interview brought up any questions or concerns, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or you can call 1800 RESPECT. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.